right, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Dustin Pendle, Dr. Philip Lancaster, Dr. Brian Lubers, and Dr. Bob Larson. Good morning, guys. Hey, good morning. Good morning, hey, good, Brad. Good morning, Brad. Happy to have you with us and happy to have you listening as well. We always enjoy uh, listener questions and listener feedback, and we've received some good ones over the last few weeks. So you can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. And if you'd like to sign up for our weekly newsletter that we send out that has some additional content, you can do that at bci at ksu.edu as well. Or you can go to the website and you can sign up. There's a little online form there you can sign up. We're going to have a couple really good conversations today, talk a little bit about grazing crop stubble, and then we've got our research roundup with one of our graduate students who actually just graduated, and Miriam Martin, who worked with Dr. Kleinhens here at the university, is going to talk to us some about pain and respiratory disease in cattle, as well as we had a great conversation with Dr. Brian Coffey from Ag Econ last week, and we wanted to follow that up and have him back again because we had some more questions there related to consumer demand and cattle pricing and how that works together. Before we get into those topics, I, I did want to say, at least here in Kansas, the Animal Science Department is coming out with some calving schools this fall, this winter. And this is a great time to kind of brush up, learn a little bit more about the calving process and what you can do, because it's always good to have that knowledge just before you need it. Bob, I know you taught some calving schools in the past. What are what are some of the things that happened to you or what did you what did you see people learn at those calving schools? Well, one of the most important things that I think we teach is just how important it is to be patient. Uh, don't don't hurry the calving process. There are times to be timely, uh, but but once you've started to help uh, to not hurry and and use as much lubrication as you can and just learn a few of the tricks about you know kind of getting the, the feet and legs positioned right and then maybe maybe the most important thing is learning when you're in over your head and you need to call the veterinarian um, and so there's a lot of things that are pretty simple to to kind of correct that a producer can do with some practice um, but then knowing when to call in uh, somebody else if it's not going well this this will shock you but the the one of the things that you mentioned well i struggle with many of those but the patience is the mm -hmm. one that i really struggle with and it, and it's hard because especially when you have heifers uh it, it just takes them a little bit of time to figure out what's going on and what they're doing yep they're gonna be slow they're going to be slow. So I would highly encourage you, uh, go to one of those calving schools if they're in your area. If you want to look, there's uh, you can look at the KSU Animal Science Department for the ones in Kansas. I know those are going in other states as well, but I think that's a, a great opportunity. As we, as we come into fall, a lot of folks have turned out. Harvest may be done or is wrapping up. And I've seen some cattle turned out onto crop stubble fields. And a lot of times it may be milo or corn stalks. And I wanted to ask you guys, and I want to think about this topic from both nutrition and health standpoint. And Philip, I'm going to start with you on the nutrition side. Is there much nutrition out there today? As we used to say, you know, grazing corn stalks, boy, there's a lot of corn left. Combines have changed a little. Uh, is there nutrition out there in those fields for the cows? Yeah, Brad, there there is, and you're right. <clears throat> We've gotten much more efficient at harvest. There's not as much corn and ear, uh, ears of corn left out there in the field for those cows to graze. But the leaves and particularly the husks are pretty have a pretty good digestibility and, and can meet the needs of a, a mid gestation beef cow um, pretty well. 
Um, probably need a little bit of protein supplement to go along with it out there, um, but the, the digestibility of those husks and leaves is good. But you got to remember, that's what they're going to eat first. And so the longer they're out there, the more they're being forced to eat some of those stalks, and which have a much lower digestibility. Any health concerns out there, Bob? Yeah, one of the things that we do occasionally see is is if there's too many too many ears left out there, too much actual corn grain, uh, cows will certainly go to that and find it and eat it first. And you can get into acidosis or foundering, um, and that's true both for corn and milo. I've seen some situations where where cows have gotten into some of the grain, and some of that has to do with um, you know, like you said, may, maybe in in the old days when combines weren't quite as good at getting all the ears, it was a little more of a risk. But sometimes there's a spill or something like that, and and those cows will find it. I'm going to go, sometimes there's a cow that knows, and she's laughing at the other cows, and she's like, yeah, you guys graze those stalks. I'm going to go find corn. Find corn. <laughs> I, know, I know how to find corn, and I'm going through the field. And then she may get a bellyache. Yeah. What, what about, Brian, what about Milo? Yeah, the other thing we we the other health concern that we kind of think about is is nitrate toxicity, um, and especially you know we see that when we have drought stressed crops, and we we know we've had drought this year, so um, that's certainly another concern if we're out there grazing those crops. Well, and and especially after a after a frost, and once we get those, and we've been late. We were late here locally this year with hard frosts. We had a couple little frosts, and it's kind of hard to tell. Is it safe or not until after you get that hard frost? But after that hard frost, you wait a week or so, and, and a lot of that has dissipated, and you, you've got a little more safety with, with putting those cows out there. What, what, what about the economic aspects of this, Dustin? Is this We talked about the health, kind of the nutrition. Does it make sense from an economic standpoint? Yeah, so what, you, what we'd recommend producers do is to maybe to pencil it out. Uh, there are some other considerations you probably need to keep in mind. You know, there's probably not, there, there might not be a water tank or water source sitting right at the edge of the field. So you're probably going to have to think about water. Uh, another thing that could be an issue is fencing. It's, again, just another expense you've got to take into to mind. Uh, we will put in our show notes. There is a corn stock grazing calculator put out by the University of Nebraska so you can put in your information you need and it kind of help you estimate what the total cost could be or, or a cost per per animal per day, um, et cetera. So there's definitely want to think about the, the economics and we'll put some stuff in the show notes to, to help with that. Well, and I, th- I think the other thing that we look at when we talk about there's a lot of variability, right? One of the things that I've heard you guys describe is there's a lot of variability in both the nutritional availability, some of the challenges, whether it's fencing or water, and you have to figure out what works for you, but also monitor those cows, right? Make sure that they're maintaining maintaining their nutrition. I think that's one of the keys is because every year is a little bit different. Every cornfield is a little bit different or milo field. And so uh, keep your eyes on those cows. Um, yeah, you're not feeding them every day. You're maybe delivering protein once in a while, but monitor that body condition, kind of keep track of how those cows are doing. And then look for individuals, maybe younger cows or, or, or cows that maybe are kind of falling behind and they may need to be managed differently. Excellent. And, and I think as you look at what works for your operation, you can find a way to make this work, especially maybe even combined with a cover crop, right? You'll see some of those stubble fields that have had cover crops put in that can add to the nutrition a little too late to plan for that this year, but it could work in the future. 
On our BCI Research Roundup this week, we're happy to have Miriam Martin, who's finishing her PhD here at K-State, and will be starting her new position as an operational manager for Progressive Beef. And Miriam's done a lot of great research relative to pain and cattle, but specifically what we want to talk about today, Miriam, is your last project was centered on pain and bovine respiratory disease. So tell us, tell us a little bit about some of the work you did, Miriam. Yeah, so there's been a lot of research done with bovine respiratory disease, uh, looking at a lot of different aspects of identifying the illness and different diagnostic tools and then some of the economic outcomes. But there hasn't been much, much research that's been done relative to looking at whether bovine respiratory disease is painful or not. And we know that in human medicine, pleuritic chest pain is often reported uh, in, in pneumonia cases. And so we were pretty confident that potentially there was going to be some pain associated with bovine respiratory disease. And we have in our lab quantified pain and then tried to find ways to alleviate it for a lot of different painful procedures uh, in cattle. So castration, dehorning, branding, um, lots of husbandry procedures like that that are pretty typical management practices, but are starting to kind of move into looking at pain associated with disease states. And a lot of cattle, a lot of different ages uh, across the U.S. as well as globally experience some form of respiratory disease. And so we think that um, this is probably something that we need to be looking into and acknowledging um, and potentially is pretty important and something um, that needs to be addressed. And so the, the object of our study was to first quantify if bovine respiratory disease is painful, and then secondly, to see if we could alleviate any of that pain um, with flinixin transdermal, which is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. Um, so there are kind of two different aspects of the study, and we decided to use an induced BRD pain model uh, we did it in November when the weather wasn't great, so we probably would have had some naturally occurring BRD anyway, um, but we used bronchioalveolar endoscopy to inoculate calves with Mannheimia hemolytica, and um, very quickly calves started to show respiratory disease symptoms, um, and then we followed them out uh, for about nine days after we had induced BRD and looked at a lot of different pain outcomes and we're just interested in throwing a lot of different outcomes in a very exploratory way um, at, at bovine respiratory disease and to try to see if it was painful or not. So we looked at mechanical nociceptive threshold, which is just pressure sensitivity. And we did that at the sixth intercostal space on the rib cage of the calves. Um, so we're just interested to see if they were more sensitive to pressure in their chest area, since that's been reported in human medicine. And we got some good results from that outcome. Um, that, that did seem to be apparent. And then we walked calves across a pressure mat, is what we call it, that quantifies if calves are distributing their weight differently on their front or their back legs, or if their stride is changing. And we did see some differences in the amount of weight that they were putting on their front right leg, uh, which was the side of their lungs that we had induced with BRD. And so we also thought that that, that was an interesting finding, um, that they 
may near the area of trauma where they're hurting be putting less force on that limb. Um, so that's something we'd like to investigate further. And then we also put RFID tags in each of the calves' ears that had an accelerometer mounted on them. And we looked at activity and rumination over time. And we put those ear tags in a couple weeks before the calves were induced with BRD. So they really learned kind of what the baseline um, activity and rumination was for those calves when they were healthy. Um, and, and what we saw was that calves who had been induced with BRD really had um, some reduced activity levels relative to calves um, who were our control calves um, who, who had not been induced with BRD. Um, so that was a really interesting finding um, and something that maybe is, is not so um, easy to catch as a pen writer to the human eye to just see a few minutes out of every hour those calves are less active um, is something that's probably pretty difficult to notice, um, but was something that we picked up that we thought was interesting. So I think some of those remote monitoring tools are going to be pretty valuable in identifying BRD. Um, so we kind of looked at some diagnostic tools to, that were kind of a little bit more broad, um, and then some that were pretty specific to pain. Um, and so had some interesting results in what we saw, but particularly uh, with the pain thresholds, uh, with the pressure mat, and then with their activity levels. What what is currently available both in the United States or other parts of the world to control pain uh, for respiratory disease? Are we still in kind of the experimental phase or are there starting to be some products available? Yeah, so in terms of products that are available that are specifically labeled to control pain from BRD, there's nothing that's available in the U.S. Um, the only product that we have labeled for pain in cattle is flinixin transdermal for pain due to foot rot as well as to control pyrexia. And through Amduca, veterinarians can use that product um, for a variety of different painful procedures, so that would be an option. Um, recently, Zoetis released Draxin KP uh, with ketoprofen, which is another NSAID um, that I think has some potential for some extra label use um, to, to try and manage some of that pain from BRD as well. Um, Meloxicam is another NSAID that we see used as well. Um, so I'd say right now where we're at is extra-label drug use uh, under the direction of a veterinarian, most likely an NSAID, is most probable uh, for, for what could be used uh, to try and mitigate some of that pain for bovine respiratory disease. So NSAIDs are non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, things like Advil that we might take or Tylenol, so things that, that could alleviate some of that inflammation and pain. I wanted to ask, Miriam, you, you used several measures, and your hypothesis was BRD causes pain and used the example of pleuritis uh, or an inflammation of that tissue around the lungs. And you used several different measures. W would you say that in the case where you induced pneumonia that those measures showed you BRD did cause pain? Yeah, I think at this point we're pretty confident in saying that BRD is painful we use a lot of those pain outcomes um, in different other painful conditions in cattle. And so when we see some consistency with spikes or decreases in those outcomes from baseline values when the animal is healthy, um, and we see that across different conditions and procedures, then we get pretty comfortable saying, okay, we think that this is probably doing a good job of representing that the animal is painful. 
The other thing you observed in your study, and I think is interesting, is you talked about the decreased activity level. And that activity level is one of the things we monitor when we're looking for sick calves. Right. That could be associated with either the pain or the inflammation from the from the pneumonia. Is that would would you say that's accurate? Yeah, it certainly could be. And that's one of the outcomes that we would say maybe is not quite as specific to pain maybe something um, that we wouldn't necessarily think about looking at right off the bat, but maybe a really good indicator um, and definitely has some predictive ability that ultimately we would like to be able to recognize when an animal is starting to come down with BRD before we're seeing a lot of those clinical signs and you're getting them in the chute. And, and that's where I think the, the RFID tags with accelerometers come in as being really valuable is if we can prevent that calf from experiencing pain, I mean, that's even one step better. Um, so if we can get to that point um, and some of that predictive ability of those diagnostic tools, I think that's pretty exciting as well for the industry. 20 years ago when I was working at the, the feed yard, I don't remember using very many NSAIDs or, or anti-inflammatories when we treated respiratory diseases. Is that, is that more common in now? And does that um, improve the outcome of treating that animal? Yes, yes. It, it certainly is becoming more common. I think we see uh, a lot of feed yards are bundling NSAID purchases with a lot of their antibiotic purchases. Um, I think we have... Um, some data that shows that, that there's some benefit to using them. We don't have a lot of economic data um, surrounding them. And so I think that's going to be the next step is probably trying to show the economic benefit. We, we haven't seen a, a big difference in the past in using NSAIDs during painful husbandry procedures and seeing differences in average daily gain. And so I think that has possibly discouraged use a little bit, um, but I think we're realizing for humane reasons, it's pretty important that we try and control pain in the future. So I think that there in the future are going to be a, a lot of feed yards that are, are going to be interested in finding a way to control this pain simply because it's the right thing to do from an animal welfare perspective. Thanks, Miriam. We really appreciate you joining us and for, thanks for the update on your research and good luck as you embark on your new career. Thank you so much for having me today. Great information by Miriam. And, and we don't often think about pain associated with BRD because it's really hard to measure, as she described. But I think it's something to consider as we start putting together some of our treatment protocols and plans. Last week, we talked to Dr. Brian Coffey, and we talked about the efficiency of the markets. And one of the other pieces of the research that they did here in the Ag Econ Department at K-State, Dr. Coffey and Dr. Schroeder and Dr. Tonzer put together a paper and they were looking at that marketing plan, but also how well does the marketing plan match our consumer preferences and how does that potentially impact demand? So, so Brian, tell us a little bit about what you found there. Yeah, so over the last uh, few decades, we've seen um, consumer demand for beef evolve and we've seen people are demanding, you know, convenience, they're demanding consistency and, and those kind of things. And even more specifically, you know, the, the higher quality beef has become much, much more important to the, to the sector. I think around 2015, we actually saw a flip when the value of the choice prime and branded beef 
surpass the value of all other beef. So that that high quality um, beef that, that that's meeting those kind of demands is extremely important to the industry now. And so we've seen we've seen all those changes. And then once you've got end users uh, who are demanding a certain thing, whether it's knowing more about the way the cattle were raised or whether it's knowing more about what they were fed or all these kind of things, then the question is, how can you consistently provide those products to those consumers that meet all those demands? Well, uh, one way to do that is that you go back up the supply chain. So a packer would go back up the supply chain to the cattle side of things and have arrangements with feeders or others who say, this is what, these are the kind of animals that we need coming in to meet those demands. And the alternative marketing agreements and vertical alignments and those kind of things are very efficient to do that. If you're just going out week to week and, and looking for cattle, you know, it's very hard to find exactly the kind you need to meet those end user demands. So the alternative marketing agreements serve a function for, for those kind of people who are targeting um, specific kinds of products. Brian, I, so Brian, I had a question for you. Um, just looking at table one and table two in the report and what you'd mentioned in the previous podcast about still 30% of the cattle are marketed live or, or dressed basis. I think in comparing those, you can see that there's a trade-off, right? There's a trade-off with those alter- those marketing systems for the producer versus trying to meet the consumer demand. And can you maybe delve into that and explain that a little bit for us? Yeah, thanks for that question, Brian. And I really uh, like that you use the word trade-off there because that's what this is all about. It's not about saying one marketing method is always and forever better than the other. It's saying that there are pros and cons for different different methods and and it's up to a, a producer to weigh those and, and compare that to their individual situation and goals um, for, for the you know selling on the negotiated cash market you mentioned nationwide we're somewhere around that 30 percent um, level 30 percent of live cattle are being sold that way and so yeah I would say that the people who are doing that see some advantage from it one of the big advantages there is flexibility. So we've seen some, some big challenges in terms of capacity over the last few years, both in capacity as in how many plants are out there, but then also operational capacity. If something disrupts, then, you know, uh, are, how much is the, the actual capacity to harvest cattle this week? Um, if you want to be in the position where, when that leverage, that leverage related to capacity swings in your favor as a feeder, if you want to be in the position to chase those premiums, then the negotiated cash market lets you do that. Um, now, that also means when it goes against you, um, you, you face the, the cost of that. Um, as on the other side of things, if you want to target being rewarded for some of the specific attributes of beef that in that customers or end consumers are demanding, then the alternative marketing agreement, alternative marketing agreement approach is better. But yeah, when the capacity leverage situation swings in cattle feeders feeders favor, you're not able to chase those premiums because you've agreed to a to a price. 
Yep. And I think that's really important. And this is very interesting information. One of the cool things about the cattle industry is we have a lot of different ways to market cattle, both feeder mm -hmm. cattle and fed cattle. One of the challenging things about the cattle industry is we've got a lot of different ways to market cattle, feeder cattle and fed cattle. So I, I think this is something to look into and and we'll put the link. So last time we put the link to the, the shorter version of the report, we'll put the big report link up as well. It's also on Ag Manager and it is great to dig into that and figure out what makes sense for your operation because the, the right choice is not the same for every operation. So thanks again, Brian. We appreciate you coming back because we had a lot of questions and thoughts after talking to you last time. Thanks a lot. I've enjoyed it and uh, hope this is helpful. Well, thanks for joining us today. We've really appreciated having you with us. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, feedback, you'd like to share with us, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.